welcome to the boss level. My name is Enigma. I am a 15-year entry veteran, video game console collector, all-around gamer, and Twitch streamer. And uh, I do a podcast once a week and kind of talk about stuff that's going around in the world of gaming, as well as uh, reach back on some past stuff that affected me during my time in, in gaming. I did, uh, like I said, I'd worked in gaming for 15 years, and uh, we're going to go back to the past today and uh, talk about something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and go over my Twitch streaming schedule, as they say over in the UK. Uh, I stream on Friday nights and Saturday nights. Saturday nights are my bourbon streams, where I will uh, sip bourbon while I play games. I sometimes do Sunday mornings, but uh, lately I have not because of uh, me getting more used to working again and the work schedule and the whole nine yards. So we might get Sunday mornings back into the full, but as of right now, no. But I will definitely be around on uh, Friday night and Saturday night. Now, uh, well, I say definitely. This upcoming Friday night, I probably will not be because uh, we're having company. And I want to uh, make sure that I'm uh, available for that. And it's kind of rude to send everyone off to bed so you can stream till 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, so so I probably won't be here this coming up Friday. But uh, I usually do stream on Friday nights. So, anyway, uh, lately I've been kind of streaming random stuff. We're, we're getting to the end of the sol summer doldrums where uh, when Madden comes out, and once that comes out, we're going to see a lot more uh, cool games hitting the market. I know at the end of the month we have the new Saints Row. We have TMNT Calabunga Collection. And then we get into September, you know, I, I think the new Valkyrie Profile comes out that month. And, and you know, we'll be getting October, November. A lot of good stuff's coming out, so I'll have more things to play. As of right now, I'm just kind of uh, going around and playing random things. I think last night, I taped the tape. I'm recording this on a Saturday, so last night I played Angry Video Game Nerd Adventures One. <laughs> so, a lot of fun stuff doing doing random things like that. So, I hope you'll join me. Uh, my name is Evil Enigma on Twitch. It's also my Twitter handle. Also, I'll be on Instagram. Uh, evil is spelled correctly. Enigmas with a Y, the Riddler way. And you can find me on there. So if you don't have, if you have a chance, drop by, say hi, introduce yourself, you know, and uh, let me uh, let me know what you like about gaming and all that. So I, I'm pretty nice and approachable as far as I know. So hope I'll see you there. And uh, we're going to go ahead and touch on a uh, topic today as the Sega Saturn. Now, I've talked about the Sega Saturn before a little bit in uh, past streams, and I've said it's the most disastrous console launch of all time, and I will uh, stand by that statement and prove it today. Uh, that being said, I own a Sega Saturn. I own a launch Sega Saturn, and I still have it, and I love it. Uh, for... Let's let's just we'll go we'll tell the story about that. My very first job in gaming was I worked in a retail store called Players in Central Arkansas, and it was a three-store chain. And the gentleman who owned that chain uh, also owned a multimedia warehouse. Now, uh, multimedia warehouses I don't think exist anymore. The fall of the uh, video market, video rental market, kind of did, did a lot of them in. But basically, they were. Uh, Video markets were huge back in the 80s and 90s to rent VHS tapes and, and uh, eventually DVDs, but it was VHS tapes back then. And uh, these, you know, not everyone, the, the thing is, is that the movie studios weren't big enough, had a distribution enough to be able to provide the, their products to individual video stores because most video stores at the time were independently owned and operated yeah you had your blockbusters and things like that but uh, a lot of stores were, were independently owned and operated so in order for for these companies to these stores to get the products in they would have to deal with a multimedia warehouse which acted more as a hub and they tended to be in major cities and uh, they would provide you know, content they would provide the, the, the their their products to the, all the surrounding areas, and then you know, just like basically working, it's like Amazon basically. It would be exactly what Amazon does now, just on a uh, commercial basis. Um, VHS tapes, uh, the way they used to work, is that a, a movie would come out in theaters, and then I, I'm going to say six months later. I don't really remember, but it may have been three months later. They would release the uh, the the movie on VHS to 
video stores only for rental. And those tapes costed about 100 to 130 bucks, maybe even more per tape. Uh, and then six months, a year, however long after that, when they would release it in retail, then they would take the tape price down to about 20 bucks, and then people could afford to buy it from Walmart or wherever they were going. Um, because they provided movies to video stores and game rentals were such a big thing, they also started carrying games. So the gentleman who owned the, the three-store chain also owned a multimedia warehouse. That was his uh, his shebang. That's what he did, and uh, I, I won't get it. I won't get into his uh, private life. But I heard that he had some private problems, and that's what ended up closing the store. I was there till the end. I worked there from like '95 to '97, I think. End of 95 to the end of 97, or middle of 97, basically. He had to close down the stores. But um, he didn't want anyone to know that he ran those, that he owned those stores because a lot of his competitors, a lot of our competitors, were also his customers. So he was giving us sweetheart deals on what he could, what we were selling. We, our stock was actually cost us a lot less to get in because he owned the multimedia warehouse. And he didn't want his, uh, his uh, customers knowing he was actually competing with them on the retail level. So, uh, and we care when I got there, it was primarily super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. We also carried Panasonic three EO. It was there when I got there, which was the, uh, I should do an episode on that at some point. It was the more adult product because it cost a ton of money and it had adult content for it. Uh, and that was always a real fun time when those customers would come in. But uh, it was in Central Arkansas. I worked at this uh, this game this game chain, three chain, uh, three stores, and I worked at the one in the college town. There was two in Little Rock, which is the capital of Arkansas, and then uh, there's Conway, is a town that's about a half hour to forty five minutes outside of uh, Little Rock, and it was uh, it is as far as I know still a three college town. So uh, during the college years, there would be a ton of people in, in that town. But uh, during the uh, time when, you know, during the summer when there was no college or not full college in session, it would not be that, uh, that busy. But uh, we had players there. That was our, our game store that we had and uh, that I worked there. We started to hear that there were new consoles coming out. Now, Nintendo, of course, was doing the Nintendo 64, or at the time, the Ultra 64 is what we knew it as. And um, it was still a couple of years off. We really didn't know a lot about that in 1995, 96. We didn't really know a lot about it outside of the fact that Nintendo was... Uh, was working on it. It was going to be cartridge based, and I wanted one. I knew, I knew that. Um, in the meantime, though, we had, we had, uh, you know, the Atari Jaguar was out in the early '90s, so we carried that stuff. Like I said, Panasonic 3DO didn't do any Neo Geo because uh, the cost was way too high, and no one. And uh, of course, our our multimedia warehouse, my the owner, the owner of the stores didn't carry that stuff because it was way too expensive. Uh, Neo Geo was a console that actually played the arcade cartridges that you installed into the arcade unit. So it was the arcade perfect experience. If you wanted arcade games, the Neo Geo was it. The problem was it was going to cost you because the console cost several, like 500 six, seven. It was very expensive. I don't remember the exact price for it. But I do know the cartridges ran you about 500 bucks. So... That was very, very expensive. That was premium stuff. We didn't carry that stuff. But we had two up-and-comers coming, uh, coming out, and that would be the Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation. Now, the PlayStation did a lot of things right, and, and uh, we won't get into that today. I think I've already covered the PlayStation on an earlier podcast. Sega, on the other hand, made a lot of problems. They made they did a lot of errors with the with the console launch, and we're going to go over that today. So, the Saturn launched in Japan in '94, late '94, November 22nd, I believe, but it didn't reach us until May 11th. Now we knew it was coming, but the truth of the matter is, the Sega kind of had this stigmata about them that they were jumping on hardware trends a little too early. Uh, the Sega Genesis 
was a was a uh, very successful console for them, but they kept introducing little peripherals to add on to it that weren't as good as the original console. The Sega CD, I think, uh, had its bright spots, but it still was not great. And it did the, the 32X. Now I had heard they were working on a console. I think it was called the Neptune. I think is what they called it, which was a Genesis with the capability to play Sega CD and 32X games without all the, the plugins and peripherals. Because if you if you had the Sega CD, the, the Sega Genesis, you had to plug in all these extra units to the Genesis. Plus you had to have RF, or not RF, but these special cables, as well as a power source for each one of the bloody things. So to have the Sega hooked up, you had to have, and with all of its glory, it had three power bricks. And... Uh, I don't know about you guys, but there weren't a lot of wall sockets that would allow you to use power bricks, and even uh, three of them, and even uh, a lot of the surge protectors, the power strips you would get wouldn't have room for that many. So they were supposed to release the Sega Neptune, which was a uh, standalone, all-in-one unit. It would take care of all that stuff. It never released. They never did it. Uh, instead, they decided to jump right to the Sega Saturn, which was their 32-bit console. Now... The best way I could describe that that uh, I can describe what the Sega Saturn was was it was the polar opposite of the Sony PlayStation. I had always been led to believe that the Sony PlayStation was a primarily 3D console that could play 2D games, and the Sega Saturn was a primarily 2D console that could play 3D games. And if you look at because it like the first Tomb Raider was on I own it I believe on the Sega Saturn it's on there. Now, it looks and plays a little better on the PlayStation, but it was available on the Sega Saturn as well. So, uh, but if you want to look at the games like uh, Mega Man 8 and things like that, they were really, really well done on the Sega Saturn. And um, they did a lot of really good stuff with 2D games. Now, they, they also did this polygonal-style graphics that uh, you... that was very reminiscent of Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo, but they would use that where it was still a 2D game, but it looked like it was 3D. And they did that a lot with uh, uh, like a stall and some of the earlier games that they did that with. And I also, and, oh, I think Clockwork Knight was that way too. The Probably the most famous version of it uh, was Knights Into Dreams, which was, it was a 2D game, but it sure as heck looked 3D. Uh, but, but, you know that's that was a later game on the console launch, it, and it was a lot of fun too. But Sega made a lot of pro, made a lot of errors with the launch of the thing. Uh, first and foremost, they were so worried, I think, about Sony coming to market f- before them. They launched the Saturn uh, before they were ready. Uh, they gave, I believe, it was Toys R Us and Electronics Boutique a six-month exclusive launch window on it in the summer so they released it in may of 95 through those retailers and they were the only ones who were allowed to carry it so you could go into walmart which was the biggest retailer in the world or in the north america at the time probably the world i don't know if it was the world but it definitely was in north america there was no saturn stuff you could walk into target there was no saturn stuff you could walk into KB Toys in the mall. No, there was no Saturn stuff. They were not allowed to carry it. No games, no controllers, no consoles, no memory cards, nothing. You could not find anything Sega Saturn in any store that was not Toys R Us and or Electronics Boutique. And I, I, maybe there might have been a couple other specialty retailers. I don't, you know, Software Etc. Maybe I don't, I don't know. Of course, we all know they're part of, they're all GameStop now, but, but. Uh, the thing is, is that uh, they did not allow anybody else to carry that console for the first six months. So, by the time Christmas hit, your retailers like Walmart and Target and, and all that, they were like, well, if we weren't good enough to carry it six months ago, we're not good enough to carry it now. So, they basically just wouldn't put the, sh- the, the, the product on the shelves at all. And that just destroyed Sega right there. That they they because of their their and and let's be fair, they 
limited the launch window for a reason. First of all, it was because they they didn't have the um, the stock to stock every Walmart and every Target and you know every store out there. They didn't have the stock for it, and so they had to lim- limit the stock to certain stores for that very reason. That all being said, they also had a much more expensive price tag on it than their competitors. The PlayStation, I believe, launched at $299, and the Sega Saturn launched at $400. So it was a $100 price difference between the two consoles. And uh, that being said, Sega did a lot of smart stuff with the uh, manufacturing of the console. And a lot of dumb stuff, too. Uh, First of all, the memory is controlled by a lithium battery like a watch battery or a battery you'd put into your car remote, your car key fob, uh, the Saturn's main memory is stored via that battery. So I know I've replaced my battery in my Sega Saturn probably a dozen times. And it's, if I play it again, if I hooked it up right now, uh, it would probably, it, I'm positive it would require a battery. I mean, it's, the, the, those lithium batteries don't last nearly as long as you might think that they should. They last longer than normal batteries, but that doesn't mean that they're uh, infallible. And uh, you'd have to have a memory card to save all of your save games to. Uh, luckily, this the memory card is a cartridge, and it is about a little bit larger, but it's about the size of a Sega Genesis cartridge. And it plugged into the back of the console. That ended up making it very easy to... Um, I'm going to use my air, my patented air quotes here, which you can't see. Mod the console. Uh, yeah, there was really no console modding at the time. And uh, PlayStation, and when people started doing things they didn't like, they would just change the chipset. There's several different versions. Or, or, or not chipset, but change the hardware of the, uh, of the PlayStation. Several different versions of PlayStation out there. Saturn only has a couple. And uh, all of the Saturn stuff is basically the same. I don't think Sega necessarily cared about people playing imported or pirated games the same way that uh, Sony most certainly did. Uh, but uh, you can buy a uh, action replay. I think that's what it was called. Let me, since I'm thinking about it. But it would plug into the back of the, uh, of the unit where the memory card was. And the one I have... We acted as a memory card. It was an action replay. Yeah, it was like an action replay. Uh, memory card, action replay. So it was you know, a cheat device. It was a memory card. And it would play it for... Uh, it would mod it for import games. So you could play import games on it very easily. And it also acted as the 4 meg upgrade card for, for the uh, Capcom. Uh, fighting games that they released alongside that, and I'll talk more about that. Well, let's talk about it now. Uh, the Saturn and the PlayStation both did not have the RAM to handle one of the more popular fighting games at the time, X-Men vs. Street Fighter. Uh, it was very popular in arcades, and uh, but they didn't have the RAM to hold that many characters. There was enough RAM on both consoles to have one one-on-one fighting games, but not two-on-two. So you, it would, there was enough RAM where you could play one-on-one and then have like the little your tag team partner coming and do a special move and leave but there was no fluid tagging in and out while on the saturn they capcom in japan which never released here only in japan they put out a four meg upgrade card that plugged into the back and that four meg upgrade card made the so there was enough ram in the on the console where now you could have arcade perfect tag in tag out with marvel uh Cap, easy for me to say. X Men versus Street Fighter, Marvel Superheroes versus Street Fighter, Darkstalkers Three, Pocket Fighter, and um, Dungeons and Dragons arcade collections all did that in Japan only. Those games never came out here on uh, the Saturn, but they did release them in Japan. In fact, I remember that uh, my local EB in Arkansas carried that four meg upgrade card with X-Men vs. Street Fighter because it was such a sought-after item over here to play. X-Men vs. Street Fighter Arcade Perfect. And uh, we, we couldn't get it over here. The PlayStation version was a horrible version of the game. But the Saturn version they released in Japan was Arcade Perfect. 
So uh, that they did that stuff right. That's pretty much where it ends because, like I said, they gave the um, the exclusive the exclusive uh, rights to sell it to two or three retailers. The other retailers got mad, didn't want to carry it. The price tag was really bad, and then they didn't have any library of games. Uh, when the console launched, I remember working in players and opening up a box that we got in shipment, and it was bug on the Sega Saturn, and it was during that six-month moratorium. And I went to scan it in, and I went to put it into the system, and it wouldn't work. So I called uh, Chain of Command, basically, I had to call the manager of the store. The manager of the store called his manager because there was actually a hierarchy even though it was a small thing. Come to find out, they sent it by mistake. We weren't supposed to have it. We boxed it back up, sent it back to the warehouse. We were not allowed to carry it at all. So it wasn't until several months later that we were able to actually get those games in. And even then, when the, when the, the console finally came out for everybody, and we carried it because, you know, we... We, we were a game store. It came with the original Virtua Fighter. That was packed into the unit. Then there was two games, three games, because there was Bug, Panzer Dragoon. Now there was four games, because Daytona USA was really big at the time, the original Daytona USA. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think here. Virtua Fighter, Bug, Clockwork Knight, Panzer Dragoon and Daytona USA. There were five games that were pretty much made available at launch that we had. Five, five games. And uh, guys, that's that's not good. When we could finally carry the console and carry the games, that wasn't a very large selection of games. And the games came out very slowly for it. By the time we could carry it, the PlayStation was out, and we had, from the launch, we had four times more PlayStation games than we had Saturn games. So that right there was automatically, it just killed any momentum that Sega might have had, which they didn't, but it killed any any momentum they probably would have had going into the official launch that Christmas. So that really hampered Sega's uh, penetration with the Sega uh, Saturn. Now, I bought mine from uh, from players. Uh, we, what happened with us, players uh, carried used games, and someone had bought a Saturn they didn't like. It, they and I can see why because there weren't a lot of games for it when they bought it they, and they spent $400 on it they brought it back to us and they sold it to the store we didn't even have a uh, UPC for it in, the, in our system yet we didn't have a, a, a barcode or a, a item number for it so when someone brought it into us we it was like DEFCON five to try to figure out exactly what we were supposed to do and we ended up paying and uh, you know i think we ended up paying 250 for it i don't really remember but i ended up buying the thing for 300 dollars because uh we they sold it to the store and then i turned around and bought it from the store i wanted it right away because i knew that was going to be you know the that was going to be my pick i didn't expect sony to be around and i'll tell you all day long that when i make uh uh, predictions that are correct. I'll also tell you when I do stuff that, that uh, I screwed up and I picked the Saturn over the PlayStation initially. It wasn't until you know Final Fantasy VII went to the PlayStation that I said, okay, I gotta get PlayStation. Because uh, in reality, I was waiting for the N64 to come out. That's what I really wanted. But once uh, Square Enix, Square Soft at the time went to PlayStation, I realized I had to uh, hedge my bets and go with the PlayStation. Uh, but with, I knew I wanted a Sega Saturn because I liked my uh, my Sega Genesis and Sega CD, and it was uh, doing. I, I really wanted to play it, so I ended up getting it. And I remember that uh, for the first week or so, we kept it up at the store because the guys I worked with, uh, gentlemen, the guys named Jason and Scott, wanted to play. Uh, Virtual Fighter. That was that was the the packing game was Virtual Fighter. Like if you buy a, if you bought a Super Nintendo initially, that came with Super Mario World. You know things like that. Packing game that you could play. Virtual Fighter One was the packing game for uh, the the Sega Saturn. And I want to say about a year later, 
Virtua Fighter 2 came out. Virtua Fighter 2 was a huge upgrade, but we played that Virtua Fighter 1 for a while, uh, for you know a week or so at the at the store. I, they wanted to play it, so I would take the Saturn up there and we would we we would play that. But uh, again, there wasn't a lot of stock out there. There wasn't until you know 1996 when stock started to come out for the console. Uh, but I was happy. I was happy. I liked Panzer Dragoon. I liked Virtua Fighter. I liked Daytona USA. Uh, there was some good stuff that I liked playing. And it was this was during a time period where, uh, to be completely honest and fair, arcade perfect did uh, arcade perfect games did not come out very often. You know, they like I said, if you wanted to buy a Neo Geo, you could, and and spend several thousand dollars to get that one game you wanted to play that was arcade perfect because it was arcade perfect it was the exact arcade board and the exact arcade cartridge that went into the arcade unit the the uh the cabinet that you would see up at the bowling alley wherever you'd play it uh daytona usa was a big deal in in arcades back in the 90s because it was polygonal and and it had i remember the car damage was a big deal the the hood of your car if you ran into the wall would would wrinkle up and and uh we thought that was a pretty big deal compared to today's standards. It's nothing, but back then that was a pretty pretty cool thing, and um, that was the game everybody wanted was Daytona USA. Outside of Virtual Fighter, it was Virtual Fighter what everybody wanted, and then it was Daytona USA. And I ended up getting both of those games. Pandragoon, I ended up getting. I don't think I ever got Clockwork Knight or Bug. I didn't get either of those. But then. Uh, they started releasing some stuff. And Sega, at the time, was one of the premier developers in the world. Uh, I wouldn't say they were quite as good as, as Nintendo, but they were right there. And Sony did not have the bevy of development houses that they have right now. They didn't have Naughty Dog and Insomniac and Sucker Punch and uh, you know all those development houses. They didn't have that. Naughty Dog existed, but they were independent at the time. So it wasn't like... Uh, I think they were independent, but the the, the point is is that uh, Sony did not have a first party presence on the PlayStation One at that time. They were mostly third party. It wasn't until later where they would really started to focus on first party stuff. I remember Twisted Metal was was a big deal on the PlayStation. That was a first party game, but uh, and, and you know they had a they had a presence, but it wasn't like they had a holy cow, you have to play this kind of experience the same way that uh, that Sony, or so, I'm sorry, pardon me, that Sega and Nintendo had. So Sega was a premier developer, and they had a lot of really good stuff that they made themselves, which also ended up costing them in the long run because it cost them one of their huge marketing partners from the Genesis. The Gen one of the, the biggest supporters of the Genesis was Electronic Arts. Uh, every sports game on the planet came out for the Sega Genesis. Your Maddens, your FIFAs, your uh, Triple Play, your uh, NHL, golf, every possible sports game on the planet you could think of was on the Sega Genesis. And uh, Sega also made their own sports games on the Genesis. And no one said a bloody word about that. I guess EA wasn't happy about it, but they didn't say anything about it. It was just competition for them. It's still didn't mean anything in the long run. Madden still sold like crazy. And so did NCAA football, for that matter, once they started putting all the teams on it. At least in my area, where I where I worked at, in central Arkansas. But uh, they get to the PlayStation, or sorry, the Saturn, and there's no, uh, no EA. EA wasn't there. And that really hurt them in the long run because they they didn't have the bevy of sports games. They had the Sega made sports games. Sega Sports was still a thing. So NFL, whatever they called it, I think there was one of those on there. But it sucked. It wasn't very good. The World Series baseball games were pretty good on the Sega Saturn. You know, they're, they're, I still have, have uh, one or two of those. Plus they had uh, real-time voice commentary which is the first time i'd ever heard that and I was, it blew me away when world series baseball came out on the saturn and i was like wow wow that's really cool but uh sega had some good stuff but they also 
you know, they, they didn't have EA, so they didn't have the bevy of sports games that they, they had had in the past. Now, with uh, the other first party, the other stuff that they had, they, they were primarily a Japanese company. So they did have some pretty decent adventure and role-playing games that, that, that had come out for it. They had a Shining in the Holy Ark. They had uh, Beyond, not Beyond Oasis. It was a sequel to Beyond Oasis, and I can't think of the title of it right now. But they had, a good, they had some good stuff. And then they also had support from Working Designs, who we talked about last week with Lunar. And they were supposed to release Lunar, Silver Star Story, on the uh, Sega Saturn, but that didn't end up happening, which we'll get into here in a few minutes. But Working Designs put out a lot of good stuff for it from Japan. They did Iron Storm. They did Shining Wisdom. They did Albert Odyssey. Dragon Force is one of the best games ever made, and it's on there. So they, they did good stuff on that, on that console, but... Uh, by the time that Sony had come out, they completely blew the doors off of Sega. So Sony looked at it at, from the sense of where they they wanted to they their whole reason to get into gaming was to, to was to beat Nintendo. They didn't care how it happened. They wanted to curb stomp Nintendo. Well, Sega was a byproduct of that. Sony knew to get to Nintendo, they would first have to go through Sega because Sega was there. They and they knew if they would curb stomp Sega, then they could focus on taking down Nintendo when the N64 came out uh, a year later. And it worked out. They uh, they beat Sega first, badly, and then they beat Nintendo, badly. And that, uh, that that's how it went. But uh, that doesn't mean Sega didn't try. Now, now, the launch of the console was bad. It was very bad. I can't tell you how bad it was for Sega to not be in Walmart. Not being in Walmart was huge for the Sega Saturn. Uh, if you've never been to the South, Walmart is, is massive in the South. Massive. And I can't tell you how many th- small towns you go into where all there would be to shop is Walmart. That would be it. There would be nowhere else to shop in that town. And I'm talking like towns of 2,000 people. But there's a Walmart. So for Sega to not have any presence in Walmart during this time period with their console just completely destroyed any momentum they would have had. Anyone who in these small towns that would have owned a Sega Saturn would have to find a specialty store to go buy it. And there was no Amazon at the time either, guys. So you're talking about having to drive 30, 40, 50 minutes to get games for this bloody thing. Or even to find it for that matter. So it it, it really destroyed destroyed the, uh, the the console out of the blocks. But they made several other bad decisions as they went along as well. Uh, in particular, Sega of America. Now, uh, we've been talking about working designs here. Talked about them here a few minutes ago. We talked about them last week with Lunar. Uh, working designs was a very passionate, loving publisher of games. Uh, when they, they, they put love into everything that they did. They, that's the best word I can use to describe them as a, as a publisher was love. You could tell that when they would release a product, they were very passionate about that product being the best product that they could release. And they were very, very uh, hands-on with getting their their uh, word out there that they believed highly in their games. Their, their magazine ads would... I remember in the bottom right-hand corner, all their magazine ads, it would say, Working Designs, Our Games Go to Eleven. Now, that's a joke based off of Spinal Tap, if you've seen it, or this is Spinal Tap, but it also means to them, we, you know, our games go to 11. They're high, they, we rate our games higher than the other games that might get 10s, you know, so that's, that's how they felt about their, their games. Plus, they put a lot of love in their packaging, a lot of love into their instruction manuals, the translations, the whole nine yards. They they were very hands-on and loving. And they had a very diehard fan base. I was one of them. I Anytime they were going to do a game, I was interested in what it was. I might not have liked it. might not have been the kind of game that I wanted. Like Iron Storm is not my kind of game. But it still got my attention. And it would have gotten anybody's attention. But because of the packaging alone. But uh, they were a very passionate developer. Now... 
they were working on two games that we know of. Magic Knights Ray Earth, which I need to cover at length in a podcast, and Lunar Silver Star Story. Now, as I said last week, Lunar originally came out on the Sega CD, but when the Saturn came out, they decided they wanted to remake it, and they wanted to add characters, they added cutscenes, they, they upped the graphics, uh, there's more enemies to fight, the, you know, this, this whole big thing that they did with, with Lunar, they called it Silver Star Story. Uh, while it was Lunar the Silver Star on the PlayStation, it was Silver Star Story on the on the Sega Saturn. And uh, working designs, it was working, working, that's not a pun, on this game. They were going to release it. Uh, working designs was not going to win any awards for getting anything out quick. <laughs> so uh, they uh, they were known for, wor- they, their, uh, I remember a lot of their fans would call them working delays because they would end up delaying a lot of their games. With uh, Lunar, they were very, very passionate about the product. Uh, product. They really wanted to get it out to the best uh, of their ability. And they, we knew they were going to release it on the Saturn. Well, what had happened during the time period was the guy who ran Sony of America was a guy by the name of Bernard Stolar. Bernie Stolar. And uh, he was, a, I think he was a toy guy. I think he worked for Mattel or something. And he knew how to do product launches. That's why he was hired with with Sony. Is uh, He knew how to market products when they were, when it, a new product when it was launching. And that's why they brought him in over there. And he did a good job. The only problem was is he was very short-sighted as to what he thought a game library would be. And uh, we used to call him the RPG Nazi because he did not like role-playing games. And so when, uh, if you look at the original Sony launch lineup within the first couple of months, it's primarily fighting games and shooting games. That's all it really is. You know, It's Mortal Kombat and Doom and Tekken, and you know, Street Fighter EX, you know, all these different games was, were being released, but there wasn't any role-playing games. And as you know, uh, cultures are different. Role-playing games were very big in Japan. They were huge in Japan. So we would open up a magazine and see these... Uh, graphics for these upcoming RPGs in uh, in Japan and go, holy crap, I want to play that. Well, Bernie didn't see it that way. Bernie was very much uh, a traditionalist in the way where he didn't want there to be any RPGs on his system, on his console. He remember him saying, I don't, I don't think it's a direct quote, but something around the lines of that he would not allow there to be any role-playing games on his console. He did not want that. He said they didn't sell, they didn't mean anything, so he didn't want them on his console. Instead, he was, oh, look, we have Mortal Kombat 3, you know, things like that. Basically the same thing that Microsoft kind of does now, where they were, Microsoft, when uh, they were marketing it to Japan, uh, you know, and, and the original Xbox I'm talking about here, they didn't have any RPGs for it. They had... Uh, shooting games at Halo, but they didn't have any role-playing games. And the Japanese were like, well, where are the role-playing games? And Microsoft would be like, Halo, Halo, we have Halo. And that's what Bernie Stolar was doing with uh, Sony uh, here in in the United States. Well, uh, as we know, Sony ended up becoming one of the best consoles ever for Japanese role-playing games because of Square Enix and the release, or Square Soft and the release of Final Fantasy VII, which paved the way for all this other stuff. Well, Bernie was kind of let go before that happened because he didn't believe in it. So Sega kind of, or Sony kind of just said, you know what? You're done, brother. You're done. We don't, you know, thank you for what you've done. Uh, We don't, we don't want you uh, to be involved with anything else. We're going to bring in somebody else to take your position. So thank you so much. Uh, Here's a nice severage package. Have a nice day. Bernie takes his industry knowledge now and goes and, Signs on to be Sega, Sega of America's president. And Bernie kind of killed the Saturn out of the gate by saying the Saturn was not the future of of his company. So he's got this console that's getting its rear end kicked. 
and uh, the head of the company is saying he's not interested in uh, marketing the console anymore because it's not the future. They were working on the Dreamcast at the time, but it was still like, come on, dude, sell your product. Sell people your product. Tell people why they need to buy it. And he wouldn't do that. That being said, they ran into a problem with working designs. Now, this is all going to be a speculative third, fourth, fifth-hand information. I'll tell you what I heard had happened. I was not there for it. I'm just going off of the head of working designs, Victor Ireland, at, uh, who's still in gaming, I believe, uh, went on to working designs website and spelled this out as to what had happened. So uh, E3 is a big deal. At least it was a big deal every year. At the time, it was only industry. You had to be a, a uh, journalist or a in gaming, a game company, to actually go to E3. And uh, they had booth space. You know, basically, you would have these booths, these big booths. I'm, anyone who's been to a con knows what I'm talking about, a convention. Just imagine them on a, a very grand scale. They'd spend thousands of thousands of dollars to make these huge uh, booths. Now, I've been to E3 once, and it was a very, very big uh, deal. I had a great time, but it was very big, very grand, and that's that's what E3 is with a lot of, of uh, huge sets. Well, uh, Sega had always granted booth space to their third parties in their booth. So you would uh, walk into their booth and you would see, hey, well, here's some here's a new Sonic the Hedgehog, but over here, here's some Capcom stuff, and over here, some Konami stuff, and, and, and things like that. They would always grant a little bit of booth space. Not a huge amount of booth space, but they still would do it. And working designs, they had a good relationship with Sega of Japan, so they got booth space, and they would... They wouldn't, so they wouldn't have to pay for their own booth. And that was a big deal to Working Designs because they were a very small publisher. They put a lot of love into what they did. They had a very passionate fan base. But for the most part, they were they were the size of your local 7-Eleven, guys. They did not have a lot of, of uh, capital to spend on booths and booth space. So they really needed that booth space from Sega. And uh, Sega called them. Bernie called them and said, uh, "We've eliminated your booth space this year. You're, there's no, there's no room for you. So you are out. Work designs. You will not be showing any products in our booth at E3 this year." Victor Ireland, the head of Work Designs, of course, was exceedingly upset and decided that he was going to make a couple of phone calls to Sega of Japan, which is what he did. And Sega of Japan turned around and vetoed Bernie Stolar and said, you have to provide them space. They've been a very loyal publisher for our console for years. They're very loyal, with a very passionate fan base. Give them booth space. So Bernie, in a uh, typical American way, uh, and this is exactly how we do things for those who aren't Americans, especially American males, we're very much like this is uh, when we've been called on the carpet by our superiors like this, we find a way to comply while giving a middle finger at the same time. And that's exactly what he did. He put working designs in the very back of the booth, of the Sega booth, back by a, a like an exit where the employee, the uh, Sega workers would go in and out of, a place where there was no traffic at all. And... Uh, Victor Ireland flipped his lid. He was so freaking mad that he just he canceled Lunar right away. They still had to do work. They still had to do uh, Magic Knights Ray Earth because that was a Sega of Japan property. Magic Knights Ray Earth was not Sega of Japan property, but the game was. Okay, so they were they were going to follow through and release Magic Knight Ray Earth. But Lunar, they canceled. They said, we're done. And uh, they announced it that next week on the Sony PlayStation. So one of your dedicated publishers with a dedicated fan base takes their ball and goes to your competitor. It was a disaster. Complete disaster. There was nothing they could do about it. They still had to do Magic Knight Ray Earth. 
uh, Magic Knight Rare Earth, while not a Sega property, the game was a Sega property. So uh, Sega Japan made Magic Knight Rare Earth. So they still had that contract. They still made that and published it. And it was the last game made on the Sega Saturn. But uh, the subsequent follow-up games that uh, Working Designs could make ended up going to the Sony PlayStation instead. And that's when you see, uh, what was it, Lundra they put on the PlayStation 1, Lunar, Lunar 2, uh, Ark the Lad was on PlayStation. They released a lot of stuff on the Sony PlayStation, and uh, it really hurt, hurt uh, Sega there. Now, overall, I love my Sega Saturn. I really do, and I have a really good collection of games for my Sega Saturn. Not a full collection. There are games, a lot of games I'm missing. I didn't buy everything. But I have most of the working design stuff on there. I have Shining in the Holy Ark. I have that Beyond Oasis sequel that I can't think of the title of right now. Uh, you know, Burning Rangers. I have all three Panzer Dragoon games, including Panzer Dragoon Saga. And you know, it, I, I have that stuff, and I'm very proud of it. Daytona USA, Virtua Fighter 2. I, and I, I love having all that. I would love to be able to display it here in my game room, but I don't have the space for it. And it was a big deal. It was a very big deal to to have that, uh, for me to have that stuff. And, and uh, I understand a lot of it is, is pretty expensive now, but it, it was the worst launched console in history. It just... They, they completely killed any momentum they could have had by giving that six-month exclusivity window to two retailers, and one of them not being Walmart. I, I just it, it, Walmart was everything at the time. If you got into Walmart, you were so much better off. And once Walmart gave them the finger, they were completely screwed. Then you bring in a guy who wasn't sure how to manage what he had, the base that he had, and uh, ended up running off his one of his most popular uh, publishers on the console, which ended up costing them a lot of diehards in the process. And guys, I'll, I'll tell you flat out, I've known people who were such dedicated Lunar and Working Designs fans that they thought everything else sucked compared to, to, uh, to their stuff. They were v such diehard fans. They thought Final Fantasy was horrible on the Super Nintendo. They didn't like it at all. They only wanted to support Sega-made stuff. And Lunar was right in their wheelhouse. They, that's, that, was, that was it. And when that stuff went to PlayStation, then they had nothing they could complain about anymore but, but to play those Final Fantasy games because they were JRPGs on the console. Now, of course, the fall of work and designs also happened because they made a lot of poor business decisions. Uh, I remember uh, Lunar 2 on the PlayStation came out the week prior to Final Fantasy VIII. Now, I can't stand Final Fantasy VIII, but I didn't know that at the time, and no one else did either. And I love Lunar 2. I have my copyright over there. I didn't buy both versions, but not, I'm a diehard game fan. Not everybody's a diehard game fan. And folks do have their limits as to what they can, they can purchase as far as games go. I, I'm that way now, or I can't buy everything that I want. But uh, I know that when you have like an $80 bundle, which is what I think their Lunar 2 cost was like 80, 90 bucks. And then Final Fantasy VIII's coming out a week later for 50 bucks. Gee, let me think about this. Which one am I going to buy? <laughs> you know? And uh, so they, they made a lot of poor business decisions. I'm sure they would probably say they didn't, but they did. And uh, in the long run, they ended up going out of business in the 2000s, 20-aughts, 20 like 2005, 2006, I think it was, because they couldn't get anything approved from Sony, and they didn't like uh, they didn't like working with Sony either. So, sad, because they were a great publisher. But uh, And then, of course, we know what happened with Sega. They ended up uh, releasing the, the uh, Dreamcast in 1999, which was a great console. Uh, but once they saw the juggernaut that was going to be the PlayStation 2, they knew that they were in a heap of trouble. Not just trouble, a heap of trouble. A huge trouble. They knew they, were going to, they weren't going to be able to compete. So they uh, clearanced out what they had and became a third-party publisher. Which is really good on them. 
you know, and and I didn't mention this, and I should have mentioned this. There was a holiday where where the Saturn actually competed with the PlayStation because they were giving away three games inside the box with every Saturn uh, uh, console sale. It was like Virtua Fighter Two, Panzer Dragoon Two, and Daytona USA. I think were the three games. Plus, it was an they had the modem for it. There was, it was online for some games. You know, they, they they made a lot of good decisions with the Saturn, but they you know commercially it was they were just in a lot of trouble. So that's the story of the Sega Saturn. Uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone actively go out and try to buy one because I'm sure there's a lot of faulty ones out there. But uh, the games the game library is very expensive. Pandragoon Saga used to go for at least 200 bucks. I don't know what it goes for now. I should probably look that up. But uh, it used to go for $200. And then, uh, you know, Shining Force 3 and Burning Rangers were very expensive as well because they were released right there at the end of the console's lifespan. So uh, it, it was a big deal and uh, for those games to, to come out as late as they did. And they were great games. But... Sega was just behind the eight ball from the start. They had dug themselves into a pit, and they never could uh, put you know get back out of that pit they had dug themselves into. That was the, that was the real problem that they had, and uh, they foresaw it with the Dreamcast, and at least got themselves out quicker. The Saturn lost them a lot of money, but the uh, the Sat the Dreamcast, they made their money, they cashed in their chips, and. Uh, decided they were done. So we're going to call this one a day. Thank you for joining me today. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week, but I'm sure I'll think of it. I do appreciate you being here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitch. Come see my stuff Friday nights and Saturday nights, usually about 9, 9.30 Central Standard Time to about midnight. And uh, come hang out. Tell me what you think. Follow me on Twitter. That's where I talk to people. Uh, I am there trying to spread positive messages wherever I can. So... Come see me, guys. Come talk to me. Come watch me play some games. And uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope I see you soon. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.